You are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. But Acts 15 is a particularly important piece of the puzzle in the book of Acts. We've been discussing this uh, series called Witnesses, Imperfect People Beholding Jesus' Work. And this is the start of the church. Uh, Really, Jesus walks out of the grave. And from that moment, as he continued to gather disciples by uh, really just the, the mere invitation of seeing a resurrected Savior, that in and of itself has the ability to transform uh, and to validate an entire Christian experience. And that's what we see happen, and uh, people are filled with the Holy Spirit. They're given the charge uh, by this resurrected Jesus that since all authority is given to him, he now gives authority to us to make disciples. Uh, That means we proclaim this resurrected Jesus to everyone we meet. And what we begin to see in the book of Acts is that everyone we meet is taken seriously, the edge lines of what we thought was uh, God's intent for salvation has been rubbed out. And we see people that we never thought would be uh, welcomed to to Jesus, welcomed. Uh, Gentiles are included. Jews, we kind of thought it was just for the Jews. When God had made promises all along, it was always going to be a multinational group of people. As we just sang, uh, it's, it's for every race that we sang. And we begin to see the unfolding of the drama of God's unconditional love for all people right here in the book of Acts. Last message, we took a long time, it's actually two messages in in one, to talk about this sharp division that we saw. We saw a sharp division. Once Jesus is raised, there's really only two ways that you can live your entire life. And we begin to see what these two ways of living begin to mean in terms of their consequence. You can live your life by sheer grace. That is, God has come to you and he has not made any particular requirements or conditions of you. He simply comes regardless of condition and says, I have done all the work for you in my son Jesus. I have validated that with his resurrection, and I'm giving salvation to you freely by grace for those who simply trust in what Jesus has done for them. That is life by it is finished. Remember the words that Jesus said from the cross. That's one way of living. All that God has to offer to us, we receive open-handedly by grace, by sheerly, uh, sheer faith. The contrast of that is life by the flesh. And if the mantra for grace is, it is finished, then the mantra of the flesh is the old Nike slogan, just do it. It's just do it Christianity. You can do it. You have something to offer to God. You have some skin in the game when it comes to your own salvation. And boy, howdy, you better get it done or else. And this is what we saw happen uh, when, especially when the Jewish people came to play their religion game to Paul and Barnabas. And you remember the persecution that it brought to Paul. Why? Because 
Paul and Barnabas were free from the law. They were free from the burden to pull it off. And they proclaimed a living God. They proclaimed a God who actually makes promises and keeps them, as opposed to us who make a lot of promises to God and can't keep a thing. And that gets Paul in trouble. And what we discussed was that the consequence of living life by the flesh is not freedom or liberation. Life by the flesh only perpetuates more death that we've been experiencing all along. It doesn't get us further down the path of righteousness and lawful living. The law actually prohibits the very thing it tries to attain. It can tell you what lawful living can look like. It can tell you these are really good things that we ought to pursue, but the consequence of living your life by just get it done is actually more condemnation, more guilt, more shame, and then more judgment for those who can't get it done either. It breeds all sorts of the wrong things. Whereas what we've seen by, if you live life by promise, what you find is since you have nothing to bring, you have empty hands, which means you can actually get around to finally loving your neighbor. You're not so concerned with, how am I going to pull this off before God? Your concern is, Jesus pulled it off for me. What do you need? How can I help you? And life by grace actually gives you the freedom that we all desperately long for. And this is no different. So the whole thing that we've been talking about is actually living a life of repentance from our fleshly living, turning away from living life by just do it, and actually looking at the grace of God in a deeper way, going deeper into grace. What this means is we constantly live our life believing in Jesus more and more and more. We don't move away from faith, we move deeper in. And so we find pockets of our hearts that are still bent on, well, I have some skin in the game. I can do it. I am a good person. I can pull this off. We repent of that. And even the darker places, we continue to say, Jesus did it all and live in that mode. Faith in the gospel leads you through. We saw this last week. Faith in the gospel can lead you all the way to death. It can lead you all the way through it. There's resurrection on the other side. You say, well, living life by faith, living life by it is finished, means that there's really not a lot of things for you to be doing in the sense of righteousness. And that's true. You know, the world doesn't like that. The world likes you to believe that, no, you have skin in the game and you better do it all right. And they have their own particular mantras. They have their own particular politics. Everybody in the world believes that you better be doing the things that you need to be doing to save yourself. Just coming up short and saying, I'm just going to hang on to Jesus and Jesus only is not a popular message. And the reality is the consequences of living by the flesh and the impact that it has on the church, the church is marginalized. Those who live by Jesus and Jesus alone get persecuted. And you know what? The power of the gospel, the power of living life by grace is that there's resurrection on the other side. You can lead you all the way through death. And the promise is on the other side, there is resurrection. That, my friends, is truly amazing. And at times, you're going to have to check yourself because that's too good to be true. And to be honest, that kind of faith is something that you and I, because I see a lot of beating hearts here tonight, we haven't experienced yet, that yet, have we? The only thing that we're hanging on to is literally looking at an empty cross and an empty tomb and saying, I believe that. And I believe that for me. It'll see you through. But also, living life by grace gives us the only reason to celebrate. 
Remember we saw this at the very end when Paul finally lands in Antioch. The church has an amazing party because of all that the Christians had done. No, but because of all the things that God had done. They realized we couldn't do this if we tried. We didn't even sign up for this life. And yet here we are. Look at God had done. God had brought all the salvation to the Gentiles. What an amazing thing. Tonight, it's going to get a lot messier. But the problem you're going to see here tonight is that of all that we talked about in the past couple weeks, the biggest threat to the church and the biggest threat to the gospel does not lie outside of the church. Let me say that again. The biggest threat to the gospel does not lie outside of the church. What we're going to see tonight is the insidiousness of our sin, not their sin, our sin, that makes the biggest threat to the gospel you and me, our own unbelief, the church's inability to simply hold on to Jesus and Jesus alone. The church has a particular knack of diminishing the gospel. Diminishing the gospel is not an outside-the-church problem. I mean, it is, but it's not primarily an outside-the-church problem. I would say even fundamentally, the problem of diminishing the gospel begins with Christians. Don't believe me, Hank, just hang on. We have our own particular knack of using our own Christianity to cloud the amazing realities of the gospel. And that is the biggest threat to the inside and outside the church world. We as a church have to have clarity on the gospel. And we see here in our passage tonight, read with me if you will, uh, Acts 15, and we're going to read all the way down to, uh, well, We'll start, off, we'll start off all the way down to verse 5. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to Moses, you cannot be saved. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Diminishing the gospel is a particularly Christian problem. This is nothing new. If you remember, go back to verse, uh, go back to chapter 14, verse 2. 
you can remember these same, this same group. It's actually, perchance, a different group in, in some way. In verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 2, we have the uh, detail of unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles, but they poisoned their minds. The Gentile brothers who were just converted, unbelieving Jews came and poisoned their minds. Remember, we talked about this in the contrast between flesh and grace. You have grace, life by it is finished, and then life by just do it. And when the flesh comes in and starts to take away and diminish the amazingness of God's amazing grace, it's like poison. It corrupts the entire thing. This is very similar to what Paul would say in Galatians. And actually, uh, I, I, you don't have to agree with me, but I particularly believe that the entire book of Galatians is actually written between this sending. This point right here in chapter 15, where you have men coming in saying, you have to be circumcised. And before Paul and Barnabas go up to Jerusalem, I think Paul writes his letter to the Galatians who are struggling with this very issue. And this is what Paul ends up saying about those who are perverting the gospel. He says, I am so astonished that you have left the one who called you into his grace and began to listen to another gospel by those who seek to trouble you and distort the gospel. Not that there is another gospel, but there are those who want to trouble you and distort the gospel of Jesus. Paul is troubled by others coming in and upsetting the gospel apple cart. This is a low-hanging fruit illustration. But it shouldn't be surprising, especially to those of you who have kids, to understand this word poison. Because you know, like, when kids start to drink from a drink, and especially if it's like, has a straw, and they're in mid-meal, you know the kind of poison that goes into the cup to where, like, that is undrinkable, except for the kid who is now the owner of that cup. That thing is poisoned. There's a whole host of floaty McFloatertons in there. There's, a, there's some of the brownie. There's, there's all that stuff floating around. That thing's poisoned. It's gone. It's shot. I shouldn't have to convince you that a little bit of poison in food could be absolutely detrimental. Some of you in the science field or in the medical field would know that to be true. It only takes a, a little bit to corrupt the entire thing. I could use a little bit more uh, rudimentary or graphic illustrations about bodily excrements and cups and stuff like that, but we won't go there. I don't have to, because reality is we understand this idea that, that purity is 100% or it's nothing, right? I can give you like 2% poison, but are you going to take that chance? Are you going to run that risk? No, 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 no. We, we, don't, we don't play those games, right? This is a kid's cup, and you see the straw, and you see the floaties in there. So like, you might get a couple sips without floaties. You going to take that? No, we're not going to take that risk. Yet it's amazing how many Christians put up with the poison of the flesh. It's, a, it's amazing how many Christians continue to take risks with the amazingness of God's grace and creep in just a, just a little bit of law. They just bring in, I mean, it's just, I mean, these are not bad things, Right? right? These are good things. And we creep in just a hint of or else-ness into the gospel or into our doing or into our religiosity. 
we creep in just a little bit of judgmentalism for those who don't keep standards quite like us. And it corrupts the whole thing. And you say, is that really what's going on here? Look, just, just take a look at the verbiage that Luke gives to us here in verse 1. He, he quotes these brothers saying, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you need to work a little bit harder and clean some things up. Is that what he, is that what he says? That's, that's not their accusation. Look, look at their accusation. Unless you're circumcised according to Moses, you can't be saved. You're on your way to hell. You, 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 you don't have justification before God if you don't have circumcision. It, it said here a little bit later on in verse, uh, in verse 5, it is necessary to circumcise them, to order them, not just to be circumcised. That's never what it was about. It was about, it was about self-righteousness in order to keep them in the law of Moses. They, they point at circumcision as like, that's what we're looking for, but that's not what they want. A, a self-righteous heart is never satisfied with one element of righteousness. We intrinsically know that righteousness is all or nothing. You and I, we intrinsically know that righteousness is all or nothing, which is why you struggle with self-righteousness like you do which is why you wrestle with guilt and with shame like you do, because it feels like all or nothing. It was, it was amazing. I, I posted this week, um, I, I said, what are those things that you, have to, that you feel like you have to add to Jesus in order to feel justified? You know, if you're using the equation Jesus plus blank equals salvation, what are those things that you're tempted to add personally? And I got a whole host of answers. I got, I got everything from Jesus plus how I feel. It's not enough that Jesus died on the cross objectively. I have to feel saved. I have to feel justified. And if I don't feel that way, I get nervous. I get antsy. I get shaky. Because some people says something to me online that you cast some shade or some judgment on me and it hits my soul square and I feel like all is lost. We're tempted to think that way. We're tempted to think about our performance. I totally screwed up with my work or I totally screwed up with my husband or my wife or I made this critical error that I never thought would happen. And you feel like all is lost in that moment. Judgment comes flooding in and you feel like, what's worth even living? Even one person expressed like, oftentimes, I, honestly, I feel like if I don't have the right words, it's not enough. Like, it's not enough that Jesus is working in my heart. Like, if I'm not articulating that well, like, if, if, if I'm not expressing that and people aren't, like, resonating with what I'm expressing, then I, I just feel like it doesn't matter. We, we are so crafty. We're just like these Pharisees. Unless you have circumcision, I'm not saved. Emily Stout, I'm going to read her thing. I didn't tell her I was going to do this. Um, she's not here to defend herself anyway. She probably lost righteousness right there just because she didn't show up to church today. Listen, listen, listen to this and, and just ask yourself if you, if you don't resonate with this. She says, what, 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 the thi- what are the things that she leans on plus Jesus to fill in salvation blanks? She says, Jesus plus cooking healthy meals for my family, a clean house, always patient with my kids, providing every opportunity for my kids and always knowing what to say doing devotions every single day, keeping up with the laundry, attending and serving at all church and school events, and spending every free moment praying, 
always staying content, feeling encouraged when I read scripture. Oh, and not being anxious about always trusting God when those things don't happen out of every moment of my day. All that equals not just approval, but really high approval with God. Do you, not, do you not resonate with that? And if one of those things doesn't land, it's all gone. You see, that's, that's what it's about for us. It's, it's never about one little act of righteousness. It's about the whole thing. And we instinctively know that it's all or nothing, and yet we, we just chronically seek to, to land, maybe not like, I don't, maybe not absolutely everything. I mean, no one's perfect, right? But like, here are eight things that I've done that are awesome. And we, we realize instinctively in ourselves, we, we almost never admit it, but it's in ourselves, it is all or nothing. And it's not just about circumcision. I have to. It's necessary. It's absolutely required unless I can't be saved. And I have to keep the entire thing. These things individually feel so small, but they begin to distort the gospel enough for us to believe that we have to justify ourselves in order to be saved. You understand how, how easy it is to distort and twist and poison just this much, poison the gospel. And it feels like it's riding on everything. We have to do it. The reality, the reality of the situation before God is that it is all or nothing. Like we're, we're right. And God, God understands this. He, he wrote the law of God on our hearts. So it should feel weird when we're not holding up our end of the bargain, right? It should feel weird inside. We should feel not right when we're not holding up our end of the bargain in regards to the law, okay? That's how God has wired us. But God has said that his law is 100% or nothing. Remember Jesus came? Remember what he said? Unless your righteousness succeeds that of the scribes or Pharisees, you're never going to see the light of day. You must be holy as your heavenly Father is holy. All or nothing. And yet, the gospel is particularly for those who have sinned. The good news of what Jesus has done is particular for those not who have kept the law, but for those who have fallen short of the glory of God, which do I need to remind you of Paul words? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us in this room has not kept the law from day one. Every single person in this room is not keeping the law right now. Right now at church which is why, yes, we need 100% of the law. God gifts that to us because it's a declaration of his holiness and of his righteousness and his character. There is no one like our God, praise God. But also, particularly, we need 100% of the gospel because we're not living up to God's standard. And so for us, it is the gospel or bust. For us, it is grace or nothing. For us, it is it is finished or we are finished. We need, we need 100% of the law, but we need, and we praise God, we have 100% of the gospel. And so my friends, it doesn't do us any good to live life by law. Number one, because the law has already been silenced in Jesus. But number two, that is, we can't do that. 
We'll see this a little bit later on, but it's amazing how easy, number one, we creep law back into our situation, but how easy we creep and pervert it for other people. This is what we learn in this scenario, because you can, if you read the book of Galatians, you can see pretty quickly, again, this is not an outside the church situation. This is an inside the church problem. They're meeting in Jerusalem to solve church problems. Should we allow a little bit of law to creep in here? Or should we continue sola fide, right? Faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Should we continue that way? Or should we continue Jesus plus circumcision? Or Jesus plus keeping the entire law? Because that's what it would obviously take. It's an inside the church problem, and yet we often bring, church, we, we often bring law in, and we're simply really happy to also dish law out. And my friends, this is what I would encourage you. If it is finished for you, then it's also finished for every other saint in this room. Which means judgment really doesn't have a place here. That's what that means. Judgment doesn't have a place for the people of God. Why? Because judgment has already been poured out. We can speak the truth, but we don't, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's no or elseness for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no, it is necessary, there is no unless you cannot be saved. That's already taken care of. So I don't have to turn the law on you. I turn the law on me enough, but I don't have to turn the law on you and say, well, you're not really holding up your end of the bargain. You need to pretty much get, get on it or else. No, no, no. You can recognize they're not holding up their end of the bargain just like you're not and say, praise Jesus, it is finished for you. 100%. So these, this issue, it really brings in two questions. And really, I'm going to read a string of questions. One author put it this way. These are the questions that surround this text. Is the sinner saved by the sheer grace of God in and through Christ crucified? Has Jesus, by his death and resurrection, done everything necessary for salvation? Or are we saved partly through grace of Christ and partly through our own good works or religious performance? Is justification before God sola fide, which is by faith alone, or through a mixture of faith and good works, grace and law, Jesus and Moses? The question out of that that flows in this passage next is we'll get to, are Gentile believers a sect of Judaism or authentic members of a multinational family. So two big questions we're really going to wrestle with for the rest of the evening tonight on our text is number one, how are people saved? We're going to get three apostles to chime in on this. How are people saved? And let's just, I'll concede the answer here. Let's say it really is all by grace. Hint, it is all by grace. How are we going to coexist? Because now we have uncircumcised people and circumcised people in one room. And that's a little scary, if I'm honest with you. Now we have religious people hanging out with irreligious people. That doesn't seem like a great recipe. We have bad people mixing with good people. That doesn't seem like a healthy recipe. How are we going to coexist? Hint, same answer. We'll talk about it. How are people saved? This becomes our really first question, maybe, every time. This is every time. Not half the time. Literally every time. If you want to go ahead and click it, I don't know what's going on. 
It's here. Maybe dead. How, how are people saved? From here on out, uh, we're going to have three different, uh, well, essentially three different apostles give answers uh, to some of this question. Remember, they go up to Jerusalem to have this discussion. Is it necessary for these Gentiles to be circumcised? That's the question. And then if not, we better figure out how we're going to live because this is going to get really messy. And in verse 6, we get Peter's answer. Peter's first up. If you know anything about Peter, Peter has a really hard time in Galatia, doesn't he? Peter struggles, which is the nature of Peter, right? Peter's like you and me. At least like me. I don't know about you. But he wears his struggles out on his sleeve. And we have it all written down here in the Bible, and it's wonderful. I praise God for Peter. But we have this glorious answer here. Read with me in verse 6 and following. The apostles and the elders were gathered together. Remember, this is no small dissension and debate, or uh, in another passage, well, in verse 7, uh, after, and after there was much debate in verse 7, Peter stood up and he said to them, Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. Round one, Peter. How are people saved? Peter says, we have the same gospel graces. We have the same gospel graces. It's the exact same. Brothers, you remember this situation back in uh, Acts chapter 10? In fact, go back with me really quick. Acts chapter 10, verse 34 and 35. This is Peter and Cornelius. You remember, Cornelius was the first Gentile believer that we saw. Remember, this this happened because of a vision. I remember, remember this story. Uh, God gives Peter a vision, and he sees a lots of like animals, and Peter's like, I'm pretty righteous, God, I don't, I don't eat that stuff. And God's like, no, I have made them righteous, go kill and eat. He goes, I'm pretty righteous, are you sure about this? I don't want to ruin my righteous credentials. And God's like, if I have made them clean, they're clean. And after that, he, Peter realizes, oh, God's opening things up to people who are unclean. God is cleaning up the unclean. And after, right after that event, uh, Cornelius has a vision that Peter would come and preach the gospel to him, and Cornelius is saved and baptized. But listen, listen to the account in Acts 10, uh, 35, uh, 34 through 35. Uh, Peter opened his mouth and said to the Gentiles there, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. He's not a respecter of persons. He doesn't base things based on pre-existing conditions and people. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right and accept, is acceptable to him. You go to verse uh, 43, just a couple pages over. To him, all the prophets bear witness, uh, to Jesus, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. And while Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. Believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. They were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water from baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. 
and they asked him to remain for some days. This is that very situation that Peter brings up in really rebuke of those who said, we demand circumcision. Peter's like, nuh-uh. We have the same grace. The same graces that we have are at work in them. You can't demand anything of them that you haven't demanded of us. So what, what kind of graces do we see? We see in verse 7 that the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel. They have the exact same message of Jesus' death and Jesus' resurrection preached to them. Same gospel, same doctrine. They have the very same faith. Remember, faith isn't something we do. Faith is something that is worked in us by the Spirit as we hear the word of God in the gospel. So it's revelation, but it's life given by the Holy Spirit in light of that grace revelation. And they believe. In verse 8, God knows the heart and God gave them the Holy Spirit. God abides in these Gentiles. It's not like they're distinct. It's not like God saying like, well, they can have some of the grace over here, but I won't fill them. I won't give them my presence. I won't give them all of me. Oh, they have, they have all of God. They have the Spirit. He made no distinction between us and them having cleansed their hearts by faith. It's a clear picture of that cleanse, is that idea of they, they've been baptized, they've been washed, they've been sprinkled clean, new hearts. The same union that we have into Christ, they have been baptized into Christ. They're cleansed, they're washed. There's no more sin. There's nothing holding them back from experiencing uh, forgiveness with God. And then he gets pretty serious with these Jews here. Why, why, why would you put something on the Gentiles that not just we, but our fathers haven't pulled this off? What an amazing statement. Shot a heart, uh, shot an arrow right through the heart of the Judaistic brothers. You think it's all about righteousness? And you think our fathers have pulled this off? They've earned their way. They've done the thing. They've made God happy on their own. It's a burden around their neck. They haven't done it. We haven't done it. Now you're going to ask the Gentiles to do it? You're off your rocker. We have, we have the same grace. And praise God, that's all we have. That's truly all we have. What else, what else are you going to depend on? There is, and guys, I, I, want, I want you to hear this as church people who naturally bring law in to religiosity. Again, it's very easy for us to law creep on ourselves and cast judgment on ourselves and say we need to be better and all these, all these ways that keep us from Jesus. But it's also really easy for us to actually cast judgmental shade on people who walk in the door the first time. Maybe they're not dressed like we dress. Maybe they don't know the words of the songs like we do. Maybe they come from broken households or have some sort of life circumstance that we would see as, oh man, I don't know if you're right. I don't know if you're clean. My friend, we're going to put the same law on them that our fathers have never kept and that we ourselves are not keeping righteousness? Come on. We've got to drop that stuff. If Jesus was enough for the Jews who needed righteousness outside of themselves, then Jesus is good enough for people like you and me and for people of all walks of life. 
no matter what sin, no matter what condition. And my friends, the, the good news of that is certainly for them, but it's also for you. That there is nothing, there is nothing that you have done that will justify you. There is nothing that has happened in your life in the past. There's nothing that's happening in your life right now where God looks at that and says, you know what, that's enough. It's not a thing. You and I were born into sin. Even our best good deeds, Isaiah says, still are things that God doesn't even want. They're never enough. Our sinful condition makes them impossible to gain righteousness before God. You cannot set yourself right. But my friends, Jesus has set you right. And so likewise, there's nothing you can do to justify yourself, but also trusting Jesus, there's nothing you can do to unjustify yourself. If you are justified in him, you aren't unjustified in any other place in your life. You're good. And it's the same treatment we have for others. How are people saved? Sheer grace. All the way around. Jew, Gentile, church person, unchurched person, good person, bad person, all by grace, 100%. Checking on Paul and Barnabas. Let's see if they have an answer. How are people saved? Paul and Barnabas think that we have the same miraculous power. The same miraculous power. Go down to verse 12. The assembly fell silent. And they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. We have the same miraculous power. See, the reality is simple faith, just trusting Jesus, that is, that is like, remember, remember what I told you a couple weeks ago, right? Like the law offends us because it tells us, there's like, uh, it tells us what to do. Remember that, that phrase? The, the law offends us because it tells us what to do. No one likes to be told what to do. But the gospel offends us even more because it tells us that there's nothing we can do. We can't save ourselves. We need Jesus. That's the good news. We have him. But he's outside of us. He's not, he's not us. Somebody else did the work for you and then gave you a gift. We don't like that too much. Our flesh doesn't like that. It's the same thing. Simple faith. Ah, we don't like that. That's too easy. Relying on somebody else to do your work, that is simply un-American. Not American by definition. We do our own work. We're good. Simple faith doesn't seem so powerful, does it? Simple faith, we don't, no, I mean, no one who exercises a very simple faith, you guys, you may not know this, but you exercised very simple faith in coming to church today. You guys exercised very simple faith by sitting in your chair. You had a lot of faith in that chair. You may not recognize it. It's not powerful. It's not like great. Not, like you didn't have fireworks shoot off and you didn't see angels. If you did, get some medication. Um, I, I promise you that probably didn't happen. Simple faith is not, it's not a great thing. So you know what God did in the early days? Gentiles were believing the gospel, which is, again, historically amazing. But in the moment, you know, no fireworks going off, nothing really happening. And so God put signs and wonders, especially early on in the church, to validate the miracle of what was actually happening. Because you want to know what was actually happening when people hear the word of faith for the first time? You want to know what's actually happening? People are being raised from the dead. Dead people are coming alive. 
That's, that's what's literally happening spiritually when people believe in God. Dead people, right? This is what we have. Uh, but God being gracious because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That's, that's the miracle of faith. But again, it's like nothing. Like nothing happens. We don't actually see dead people, right? It's not the sixth sense thing. Like it's just common. And you guys, bless your hearts, you come to church every week in simple faith and you hear the word of God preached, and I as a poor, stammering preacher, it's, it's simple faith. This isn't, this isn't my work. This isn't my, this isn't my power. It's not my skill set. God's doing this. Anything that happens on the miracle level, I can't do that. If I could raise the dead, I'd be a rich man. I can't. But Jesus can, and he chooses to use simple means like preaching, and he uses people like me, and you know what? He uses pre- people like you. It's amazing. And these signs and wonders that accompany these normal means validate that what's going on on the inside is truly a miracle. If God can do these simultaneous things around the word of God preached, imagine what he can do in the heart. Ugh. And that's what Paul and Barnabas said. God was doing miracles inside of people. Certainly outside of people. Remember that, that lame man? But I'm talking even more than that. Outsiders are getting in on this stuff. Joy eternal. You're not going to find that in an Xbox. You're not, not going to find that in an experience here on this earth. It's amazing. Don't miss, the, don't miss the miracle of common faith, which happens every week, which happens around your dinner table. Don't miss that miracle. People are bringing uh, the, the life-giving power of the gospel. Even in the middle of broken hearts and desperate hearts, God continues to still bring people like you and me to life over and over again, it feels. Man, the life-giving power of the Spirit. But let's check in with James. We have the same miraculous power, but let's check in with James. We have the same eternal promises. James says this uh, at the uh, verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon P- Peter has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. This isn't just Peter's word we're trusting in. The prophets agree with Peter. Just as it is written, after this I will return. I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who make these things known from of old. That's like a little bit of like Old Testament mumbo jumbo to us. Essentially, this is Amos, the the prophet Amos. This is Old Testament stuff. James wraps in a prophecy from Amos and says, God has always been at work from eternal days to allow the Davidic king to rise from the dead and in that resurrection to bring a whole host of nations, all the Gentiles, to make much of Jesus. God has always been at work, and it's in plain as day, Jews. It's as plain as day in our own scriptures. This is part of God's eternal plan. So you have Peter checking in saying, we have the same gospel graces. It looks like everyone's saved. It looks like they're saved. You have Paul and Barnabas saying, it's the same miraculous power, life to death. looks like they're good. You have James saying, oh, this was already, always pre-recorded in our scriptures. This was always going to happen. This was God's plan from the start. Looks like they're saved. So it is, my friends, this is you and me. We're, we're right here. We're, I mean, unless you're a Jew, you're right here. 
This is God's promise all along so that people in Blacklick, Ohio, can hear the gospel and be made alive. This remnant of David, this, this, this tent of David that, uh, that God would bring Gentiles to make much of Jesus. Isn't that what we just did this afternoon? We just made much of Jesus. Like Amos was fulfilled in our sight here. It's amazing. These eternal promises. Because of Jesus' triumph over sin and death, you and I are gloriously saved, which means we are justified. We are gloriously saved. There's no more to say about it. There's no more to add to it. You don't need to add circumcision. There's nothing within the law of Moses that you need to fulfill in order to feel right. There are no words you have to say out of your tongue. There's no performance left to perform. And there's certainly not a long list of momming that you have to do in order for God to love you. My friends, he has eternally loved you in his son from the beginning of days. And the same miraculous power that was at work in this time and in the time of the Jews when Abraham was saved by faith is at work now to save you by faith, just by believing, not doing, but resting in the one who has done it for you. And Paul and Barnabas agree or uh, excuse me, Peter agrees that the same gospel graces that are at work in them are constantly at work in you now. It's done. The scope of God's grace is incomprehensible as the galaxy. Remember, this goes all the way back to Abraham. Abraham said it is through Israel that the entire nations of the earth will be blessed. So if you can imagine all the stars in the galaxies, if you can imagine and, and understand that scope, you have begun to understand the scope of God's grace. You, you, have, you have started, because the galaxies, as far as you can tell, as far as I can tell, thanks Hubble, man, we can only see the fringes of that. God's grace is that way, but it certainly includes you. You're one of those stars. So how are we going to coexist real quick, real quick? We're saved by grace, then we coexist by grace. We coexist by grace. Verse 19 James goes on, Therefore my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God to fulfill the law, but we should write to them to abstain from things polluted to idols, from sexual immorality, and from that which has been strangled, and from blood. And from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. And this gets a little weird, because he just got done saying, don't put any burden on the Gentiles. But here's my recommendation. Let's put a burden on the Gentiles. That's how it reads to me. If you, did you, anyone else read that? You're like, wait, 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 wait. Maybe back it up, back it up. Maybe, maybe you missed part of the conversation. All right, it sounds that crazy, but it's really, it's, it's actually a little bit more nuanced than that. What James, James is setting righteousness in Christ, he's bracketing that off and saying, it's done. Don't burden them anymore. It's finished. There's nothing to burden them down by. Set that aside. Leave that in the truth box. Don't move it. Now, how are we going to coexist? Oh, no, that gets a little tricky. here's Here's the best way to go about this. You've been loved infinitely, right? Okay, you've been justified, right? There's nothing you need, right? Okay, so you don't have to extract Gentiles. You don't have to extract from the Jews what you truly long for, right? They, They don't have anything to offer you other than Jesus himself, right? No, you don't have to buy the law. You don't have to take that stuff. You don't have to sell it, okay? It's just, just Jesus alone. All right, so you're free. You can do whatever you want. If Jesus has done it all, you can do whatever you want, right? And of course, everyone's like, well, you can't sin. Well, okay, all right, that's fine. 
But trust me, you want to go back? Having been given the operating system of grace, you want to go back to that old way of life? You want to do that? Is that really your best foot forward? All right, so that's not the game we're playing. But given this new operating system, are, are we free to set some things aside in order to help people understand grace? So let's say you do get circumcised. Are you done? Did you lose salvation? Let's say you do follow their rules. Did you lose anything? Did you give up anything? No. But what did you gain? Well, you may have gained a voice. You may, have, you may have gained some space with your brother who, if you just walked in and just dangled your bloody meat in front of them and just ripped a <laughs> right in front of their face, you know what? You probably would have lost a voice at that moment. James here recognizes Moses. Do you know how long Moses has been preached? Do you know how long Moses has been preached in our synagogues? I mean, how many days are there on this planet? <laughs> Not that long, but you understand what I'm saying. Moses is entrenched in us. In Christian people, Moses is still entrenched a lot of times. So what's the best way to help people understand grace? Number one, to model it. We're going to model it. And that doesn't mean we're buying into the old operating system. That doesn't mean that on our own, we're not able to eat bloody meat. We can. We're free to do that. It's okay, right? Of course, the common day example, and this is a little bit low-hanging fruit as well, the idea of alcohol, right? Some people, even in this room, and praise God for you, you, you've had a struggle with alcohol. And I don't diminish that struggle at all. In fact, actually, I, I resonate with that struggle of any sort of like addiction that would kind of keep you from, from understanding the gospel as a habit. I get that. So for some of you, you've, you've overcome it, and you realize, like, it's just not for me. I praise God for you. I mean, for instance, we have juice and wine here, okay? And the, the reason for that is because we know there are people in this room who are like, alcohol is just not a thing. I can't, I'm not going to partake. And it goes back to an old life. And I, I totally understand that, okay? But other people have never had that life. And so for them, alcohol is like not an issue. It's not a thing. It's just one of many options. So you might drink it and be like, well, am I not free to do it? Do I have to abstain in order to have salvation? No, you're, you're totally free. All right, so you're just going to do whatever you want and just drink however much you want and just flaunt it in everybody's face? Well, that's not your best foot forward in terms of the, the new operating system. That's going back to the old way of life, actually. But a new way of life actually says, I can, I can give up alcohol to serve you. Now, for the people who are having a hard time, sure, eventually there's probably a, a, an understanding about conscience. There's probably an understanding about unhinging those things from the purity of the gospel, that's probably a conversation that's, that's down the road for you, right? Paul never, Paul never looks to the weaker brother and is like, ah, weaker brother, like, you're good to go for the rest of life. No, he calls them weak for a reason. They need to be strong in the gospel. That doesn't mean you should just drink however much you want. But there's a point of, we got to come together. We got to work by grace. This isn't a free-for-all. Whereas Paul would say, you're free, for Jesus has called you to freedom. Only don't use, your op- don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That's not freedom, that's bondage. But through love, serve one another. Go, go backwards. Instead of using alcohol for your purposes, what about using abstention for somebody else's purposes? That's a new way of life. It's a new way of thinking. Fill in the blank. Maybe for these Gentiles, 
Paul, uh, James goes to them and says, like, listen, you can do whatever you want to do. But actually, what I'm going to write you to do is think through love real quick and think what it would do to a Jewish mind if you were to really put that stumbling block in front of them and not ha- have them really understand the gospel. So first, model it. And then model it enough to where you're actually able to speak it. Moses has been proclaimed long enough. It's time to proclaim Jesus. And that's kind of the assumption James laid here, is not that we continue to proclaim Moses. He actually, I think he realizes that's, that's the problem. Moses has been proclaimed long enough. It's time to proclaim Jesus. And patience and grace and understanding are all necessary. Remember, same grace, same power, same promises. That's what we're working with. Does that make sense? So James isn't going there saying like, hey, Let's not put any burden on them, but like these four burdens, let's go ahead and burden them with. That's not what's going on. Paul's saying, I want you to think through this and actually in a mode of freedom, give yourselves to these things so that we might win some for the gospel. Help the gospel be clear, not your freedom. And that'll give actually the rest of us the joy that we long for. My friends, this is what it means to live in grace. It's what it means to live in the new operating system and not by the way of the flesh. We Christians need to be careful. We absolutely need to be careful that law creep doesn't come into our own hearts, but also doesn't then move into acts of judgment against others. We should be very quick to proclaim the gospel. We should be very quick to offer forgiveness, just like Jesus was quick to offer us forgiveness from the beginning of time. So may we be as well. If God so loved us, as 1 John says, we also ought to love one another. God's call for us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace. It's amazing. We understand it is so rich that we'll never be able to comprehend it. As many as there are stars in the sky, Father, you have people for your own possession. Father, I pray that we would be quick, quick to bless people. I pray that we would be humble, recognize that it's actually more blessed to be poor in spirit than it is to have much in spirit, in terms of offering things to you. May we understand our own position in light of your law, but also gloriously understand what Jesus has done in the gospel for us so free. Father, we pray these things through Christ, who loves us. Amen.
是我。